Welcome to the Legal One podcast, brought to you by Legal One, the leader in school law training in the state of New Jersey. Legal One is part of the NJPSA and FEA family, so we are thrilled to be offering this podcast to you as a way to help you gain a greater understanding of critical legal issues. We want to provide you with convenient, easy access to essential information. Each episode is 30 minutes or less, so it provides a timely way for you to get information. In each episode, we're going to be reviewing critical legal principles based on case law, statute, regulation, or other key guidance. We'll talk about why that issue matters today and how the law has evolved. We'll talk about key steps in working with parents and other critical stakeholders to positively address the issues in question. And we'll give you more information. We'll give you resources so that you can access online courses and other events and know how to get a greater level of understanding of these issues. So let's get started. And thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. Welcome to the Legal One podcast. My name is David Nash. I'm the director of the Legal One program. Today's episode is part of a 12-part series addressing legal issues related to the reopening of schools for all students in the fall of 2021. Today, we're going to be discussing the disturbing rise in anti-Asian discrimination and the impact of that discrimination on students and families, as well as the role of schools in addressing this critical issue. I'm very happy to have with me Joanne Sung, who is the Assistant Superintendent for Curriculum and Instruction for the North Plainfield School District, and who has been a real leader at addressing issues of equity in the state of New Jersey. So Joanne, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Dave, for having me. I'm very excited to be here and addressing this important issue. As we begin our conversation, it's important for us to first look at some important demographic information. Currently, our Asian population represents the fastest growing racial or ethnic group in the United States and in our electorate over the past two decades. We also should be very aware of some recent research from the Pew Research Center that talks about the prevalence of anti-Asian discrimination that we have been experiencing as a nation. And some of the data from this survey is very disturbing. So for example, 81% of our Asian American respondents to the survey fear violence against Asian Americans is growing in the nation. 45% of those responding who are Asian American have personally experienced one or more acts of discrimination, either an incident or an experience that put the individual in fear of personal attack, an experience where others were uncomfortable around the respondent, or an experience where the individual was subjected to racial slurs or jokes, or even an experience where the individual was told to go back to their native country. So it's incredibly disturbing for us to think about where we are as a nation on these issues, the rise in discrimination that we're seeing, and of course the important role that our schools have in trying to address this disturbing trend. There has been some response that is encouraging at the federal level. In May of this year, there was legislation that was signed by President Biden, the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act, that was intended to put a much stronger focus on addressing acts of anti-Asian discrimination to streamline some federal procedures so that we can make sure the issue gets the attention that it deserves. And there will be additional guidance coming out from the federal government to help assist school districts in understanding why this is happening what are some of the underlying causes for this increase in discrimination. 
It is important as we begin our conversation to understand that there are very strong state and federal anti-discrimination laws in place that are intended to protect all individuals, including of course, all of our students from discrimination that's linked to race or ethnicity. At the state level, New Jersey has one of the strongest anti-discrimination laws in the country, our New Jersey law against discrimination. Of course, New Jersey also has one of the strongest anti-bullying laws in the country, our anti-bullying Bill of Rights. In addition to those laws, we also have a requirement in New Jersey, if we have any situation that is considered a bias-related act, where a student is targeted because of race, ethnicity, gender, religion, disability, sexual orientation, or any other protected class, school districts must respond to that issue and must report the issue to law enforcement as well. And many school districts have not fully understood that requirement to also share this information with local law enforcement and with county prosecutors offices. New Jersey has also recently put in place a new curriculum requirement, K through 12, to ensure that we are doing everything we can to address issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion in our curriculum. In addition, New Jersey has a requirement for a comprehensive equity plan to be in place in all school districts that is supposed to look at all aspects of school district operations. Of course, how we serve our students, the programs and opportunities we make available for our students, but also how we support our staff. Our school districts will have to put in place a new plan for the period 2022 to 2025. So it's critical that school districts understand the latest trends we're seeing when it comes to discrimination against students and incorporate that information into their planning for the comprehensive equity plan. The new curriculum statute that New Jersey has put into place does talk about a K through 12 curriculum that is meant to highlight and promote diversity, including economic diversity, equity, inclusion, tolerance, and belonging in connection with a wide range of factors, including gender and sexual orientation, race and ethnicity, disability, and religious tolerance. It builds on the great work that school districts across the state have been doing for many years, but it is important that this is now a K through 12 curriculum requirement. And it's very important that we honestly assess where we are in each of our school districts, what trends we might be seeing when it comes to, for example, anti-Asian discrimination and the steps we can take to address those issues. So as we think about the challenges facing our schools as we prepare for a full-scale reopening this fall with all of our students or virtually all of our students coming back, Joanne, I would like to bring you into this conversation. First, when we talk about the Asian American community, that is an incredibly broad term. Could you discuss the many diverse elements within this community and the importance of developing a more nuanced understanding? Sure, Dave. So this particular topic happens to be of a great interest to me, not only because of my personal background of being an immigrant student and going through some of the more challenging situations as a child inside the school as a student, as a college student looking to find jobs and as a new professional. So having said that, there are more and more studies that are really being published about Asian American community, particularly the divide that takes place between the Asian American community that have been 
here in this country for many generations. We know that, for example, Chinese immigrants have come here since the 1800s, even earlier, to really assist with the constructions of the, you know, the infrastructures in the western part of the country. And then there is a big divide because, like you said in the earlier on in the conversation, Asian immigrant population is one of the largest growing populations currently. So we're still seeing that much of a progression, and there is an unfortunate divide. So having said that, when people often refer to Asia, I know that people in America, in my personal experience, often refer to China, Japan, and Korea. And I would say even I would argue Korea was more of a recent addition because as a child of an immigrant family growing up looking different, you know, oftentimes people would assume that I was Chinese and would speak Chinese or whatever language that they felt reflected Chinese to me. So that's like something that we do need to kind of work to debunk, right? Asian continent has many, many, many countries. For example, I know that we have a huge increase in Indian American population right now, especially in New Jersey and our areas. We also have, you know, case in point, I don't know if you guys have been watching Olymp the Olympics, but <laughs> I've been watching them all into the, down through the night. Suni Lee is a classic representation. She's a Hmong. She's re representing a different population from the Asian continent. So I think that there needs to be more discussions about different you know, countries and different cultures that are represented in Asia. I also think that there needs to be more of an education from educators, but also culturally speaking, to talk about and celebrate just aside from the food. Food is always going to be one of those items that are, you know, that will draw people. But aside from the food, the appreciation of what each culture has brought and contributed to the American society inside and outside the school is definitely something that we need to work towards. I often say as a curriculum instruction person, the only book that really spoke to me as an immigrant child reading Bernstein Bears at the age of 12, trying to learn English, the only other book that I can think of in my high school career that, that really spoke to me, even though I didn't fully understand what it is I was reading, was Snow Falling on Cedars. And it's not a pleasant story. If you're familiar with the content, it's about Japanese internment camps, I believe. So it's just thinking about how we represent Asian Americans and the contributions that they have made to this country and celebrating their successes, as well as acknowledging and recognizing the divide that takes place and took place. And as we think about issues of discrimination, we do know that Asian Americans have suffered from both open, explicit discrimination that is incredibly disturbing, and also have suffered from various forms of implicit bias. Can you discuss the difference between those two concepts and how schools should work to address each of those issues? Absolutely. So the phrase that kept coming back in my mind and that continued to come back as I was learning about all of this violence against the Asian Pacific Islander community was the perpetual foreigner. The idea of the fact that, you know, even though there are many of us Asian American families that have been here for generations, as I have alluded to it before, there is an immediate assumption that they're foreigners. So it's the idea of Asian Americans, even though they might be educated, they might be successful, they might be well off socioeconomically, there's constant and consistent 
feeling of a perpetual foreigner, like them being the foreigner never really fitting in and belonging to the society. So having said that, I think there are two distinctions when we talk about open and explicit discrimination versus implicit bias, right? So when we talk about open and explicit discrimination, we're talking about, for example, I have seen and heard stories from my own family, from my own friends and my own circle of friends who have you know, doctorates, master's degree, going to a store and the attendant is speaking purposely, slowly over enunciating the words. It can be argued both. It's a, it's a very explicit discrimination, but it's probably onset by their implicit bias of what they don't know about Asian Americans or assuming that they don't speak the English. Again, that's perpetuation of that foreigner concept. When we talk about implicit bias, there are subtle things like, oh, well, I thought that you were a math whiz. That's an implicit bias when we talk about Asian culture, right? I remember in the 90s when I thought I wanted to go into social justice and be a lawyer. <laughs> but when I first started to feel this way, I felt like I had an onset almost like this feeling of like, why does it have to be this way? So the idea of Asian students being math whizzes, right? it's really establishing and helping to create that notion of model minority. Asians are minorities and that implicit bias and the stereotype of Asian students are quiet. They're submissive. They'll always succeed no matter what. If you don't give them support, they'll still get it at home because they have hours of tutoring that their parents will you know, spend the money and do what they have to because school is their priority. All of these things create a way that we as Asian students growing up feel about ourselves. It constructs our confidence, constructs our identity. So I think that going back to when I was in school, I remember looking at the cover of a magazine. I don't remember if it was Newsweek or Times Magazine, but there was a cover where Asian students were portrayed and they had the big glasses and they had the, the computers stacked up behind. And I just think that it contributes to how people construct their understanding. They think they know, so they create this world around them, a version of what they understand to be the Asian Americans. It's also things like, well, how come you can't act like everybody else or your sister or your brother? Again, there's an implicit bias of how come you're not submissive? How come you're not quiet? So I do think that as educators, we need to be really cognizant of that and work actively to debunk it. There are various points the students come into the schooling with various background contexts. And I think that it just creates an environment that is somewhat unsafe and unfair for the students who need the support, who could have benefited from asking of the questions and additional, you know, thinking of the supports that they can put in place doesn't always happen and that's unfortunate and I'm glad that we're having the conversation today. I do think that as we talk about these issues there are times where somebody um, might actually think they're saying something positive and it can be very very hurtful. So let me ask you about the impact of the coronavirus pandemic when it comes to discrimination against Asian Americans generally and um, against students as well and uh, some of the things that schools should be thinking about as we prepare for full-scale reopening, because we have had some disturbing forms of discrimination that are linked to the pandemic. 
Yeah, sure. So this is a heavy topic, right? Because there's a lot of cultural aspect, but also political aspect. And I think that, you know, it's unfortunate that we're all in this pandemic. I, I mean, I'm an outdoor person. I like to go out there. I like to be, you know, seen. I like to go out to dinners and, and socialize with my friends. But unfortunately, this is the state that we're in. Unfortunately, the notion of, you know, Asians being blamed for the pandemic has really spread throughout the country, I think, in the last, like, two years since the pandemic started. And it's unfortunate because even though you may not believe and you may not buy into the notion, you being affiliated just by the color of your skin, just by the way you look, it's having an impact. So, I'm going to go back to your survey that you shared earlier on in this presentation. I think it was somewhat 83% of Asian population do not feel like they're safe. And I got to tell you, as somebody who is actively advocating for the Asian American culture and the diversity, equity that needs to be put in place, when I'm turning on the TV and I'm hearing about just someone walking down the street being attacked, just because they look like the way they do. When I'm hearing 80 somewhat year old grandmothers being attacked because there is an assumption again that implicit bias of that woman will be too weak to fight back, it does play into your psyche and it impacts the way I am going to function even as you know, I consider myself a, somewhat, a, a leader. Just to give you an example, my husband and I travel often, and we've been traveling just locally, just going on hikes and here and there and going out to town. And I got to tell you, there's something in the back of my mind, even though it might not be at the forefront and, and really keeping me from participating in uh, you know, activities. I am saying to myself, like, oh, I'm alone. I'm walking down the street. I just have to be really vigilant. Maybe I shouldn't have my AirPods in because who knows if somebody is talking about me or if my husband is out and, you know, he's going to pick up something or dinner and coming back. I'm thinking, I'm saying, be careful. So these are things that have just added to, I think, our daily conversations. As for my parents who are immigrants, who don't speak the language fluently but can get by, they're very scared, right? Because when we talk about equal access, the access to media and the resources and the communication and the assurance of safety, they're not as available to the community that may not be actively seeking to participate in a podcast, participate in a training. And I think that's a serious issue that we need to really uncover and we need to continue discussing. I'll tell you, even in the media, one of the things that I've been reflecting on is when big things like this happen, 80-some-odd-year-old woman gets attacked and she fought back. You know, a man is walking down the street in Brooklyn and he got beat up. For how long did we see that for? It was literally a split second and now everything has kind of gone away. And I feel like we need to continue to unearth these conversations to place them at the forefront because when people don't know, unfortunately, we live in a society of social media, right? It's like <laughs> immediate gratification. But if it's not in front of us, it dies. And we have to keep thinking about how do we continue to bring this conversation? Because like it or not, Asian students are coming in and they're going to be in the classroom. And whether they realize or recognize or they want to acknowledge themselves as Asian Americans then or not, they're going to be going through some of these thinking. And I think that's really important for us educators to really think about and think about how we can support and how we can bring them up shedding our implicit biases and whatever background context that we have set about the culture. 
So those are such great points that you're raising. And I think it is important to remind all of our listeners that as we have experienced some recent trends, uh, some recent disturbing trends, unfortunately, anti-Asian discrimination is not a new phenomenon. This has been a long-term issue in our nation, something that we have struggled with for an incredibly long time. So given that context, can you talk about the new law that we do have in place now, which does require us very specifically to have a K through 12 curriculum addressing issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how we can perhaps use this new law as a vehicle to make sure that this conversation does continue, that it is planned out, that it is a part of what we do on an ongoing basis. So I think you know this about me by now, but I think this goes well beyond the mandate itself. We're talking about acknowledgement and being cognizant and conscious of the conversations that we're bringing to the table. And yes, the mandate is going to call for issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion being addressed in the curriculum. But what this really is about for me training and helping our teachers who are on the front line and support staff who see our students every single day to help every child feel welcome in the classroom. But there's a difference between having conversations about everybody be fair, everybody be nice, here are the golden rules, versus here's what's happening in the society and I recognize that some of you are feeling unsafe. Let's talk about that. And we're not talking about the violence bringing into kindergarten classroom, but we have to start having very poignant, intentional conversations about what's taking place in our society that impacts our students outside the classroom and really inside the classroom because they're gonna bring what they're experiencing outside the classroom into the classroom. So what does that look like practically? I think we start talking about books that we have in the classrooms, right? Resources that we have in terms of instructional resources, the posters that we hang up, the sayings that we hang up, and I'm saying going go beyond. We've all seen them, right? When we go into schools, we have the welcome in multiple languages. Go beyond that. So rather than just relying on Chinese New Year to celebrate Asian American culture or in a certain month of the year to celebrate this culture, have that conversation throughout and make sure that you have resources to allow you to have conversations. I'll give you an example. Recently, I came across an instructional resource that had to do with the word chop. And lo and behold, there is a character who is doing a karate chop. If you're going to bring it into that, Talk about karate, talk about the differences. A lot of students participate in these activities. Have these conversations that are very intentional about supporting Asian American students. I also think that bringing books is becoming a little bit easier because publishers like Lee and Lo, and no, I'm not putting a plug in for them, but it's a publisher that specializes in having a collection of books that are authored by minority authors about minority experiences. These are really valuable resources. When I was growing up, as I was saying, I was reading Bernstein Bears, trying to acclimate to this culture. My four-year-old niece has already books like My Hair is Beautiful, What Does Bibimbap Look Like, Why Do We Eat It, Being Korean is Awesome. Like All of these books help construct the way she feels about herself. And research supports children. Our children realize their race when they first enter an institution. 
So it's so important for us to really construct that confidence, construct that knowledge so that they feel good about being themselves because it's easy to point out what's different because noticeably people are going to look differently. But I think it's just the idea of going beyond and also providing training opportunities for teachers and having conversations about race is incredibly important. Having conversations about difficult topics is really important with your staff and training and helping each other to hold conversations at a workplace that's going to be positive and it's going to really contribute to the practices of educating children is also very important. So when I look at this mandate, it goes far beyond just making sure the curriculum has A, B, C, D. It has to do with really empowering our staff and our colleagues into bringing these conversations intentionally. And I will say many people are insecure and not sure about bringing race or cultural, other than let's celebrate this culture. Thanksgiving, everybody bring your multicultural day food and we'll celebrate, right? But what are we really doing to empower our students to make, help them feel good about being in school, help them feel welcome, not as an outsider, not as a person who's different. And I speak for Asian American community today because that's just so near and dear to my heart. We're talking about all students. When we talk about trauma-informed, it's about making sure every one of your classroom students feel welcome and feel good about being there and that you really want them to be there. Not just welcome everybody, good morning, but really getting to know every single child. And, and I think this mandate kind of starts that conversation. So one final question for you, Joanne. Everything that you've been talking about really, um, I think, needs to ensure that we have strong leadership in our schools that creates a safe space for these conversations to take place. So can you talk a little bit about the role of school leaders in helping to move districts forward on these important but complicated issues? Sure. I think it's really important for a leadership team to have a clear vision of clear understanding of where they are. So where are we as a district in terms of helping our students feel safe? And I'm not saying just like, you know, feeling safe doing lockdown drills. How are we helping our students feel safe? How do we know that they're feeling safe? So oftentimes, you know, my biggest go-to is look at your data sets. Look at your HIV cases, not just the ones that are confirmed. It matters to really look at the complaints that are coming in too, because it's got to come from somewhere. So even if it's falsified, you still want to take a look at it because it still gives you an idea of the current culture and climate of your buildings. So look at your HIV, look at, you know, look at the cases that are coming up, look at the conversations that are being held in the school safety teams in you know, pandemic response teams and what people are bringing forward. And I think that we need to really take a good look at like, what is the truth that is in front of us in terms of our district? Are we keeping our students safe? Are we keeping our students feel welcome or helping our students feel welcome? And I think we need to establish a common vision. And I know oftentimes districts engage in a very long and arduous process of strategic planning and such, but we're talking a very clear vision that every single leader is able to understand and agrees to, and they're part of, part of that conversation. Establish a clear vision that will help our students feel safe, especially when we're talking about the Asian American students in light of the violence that has increased over the last you know, few months and even in the last few years or so. And I also think that we need to really think about like what are the training opportunities that we need to set in place. And I think it's really, really important to think about priority goals. So again, going back to the vision, right? I can come up with probably 10 different vendors that's all gonna talk about equity and they're all gonna have great things. 
but in a position of teachers, we have to really think about what do teachers need and what are the messages that we really want to have resonate and bring into the classroom. And that's where, you know, conversations, like even me, for myself, I know I participate in your day three of the um, training of affirmative action officer when we talk about comprehensive equity plan. Those are the conversations that I'm hoping during the training, we're empowering our colleagues to go back into the building to say like, what is our comprehensive equity plan? And does it include, in light of this a, um, API, you know, vi violence against the API community, what are we doing about it? Because we have high population of Asian American students in our school. And even if we don't, how do we offset that to have conversations in a very intentional manner? And I think those are the conversations that really need to take place. And we as leaders have to be next to and aside, like be aligned and be beside our teachers and our colleagues as they're learning and as they're working through the process. I think that's incredibly important. And, and be able to admit that Maybe we don't know, like we don't know, and I don't know how to solve it, but let's work on a solution together. Because oftentimes I feel like there's this tremendous kind of pressure, right, for us to have the answers. And at the end of the day, these are things that are unearthing. Yes, they have been here for many, many years, but now we're at a point where we're having conversations in school. Students are coming to you, asking questions about how do I deal with watching, you know, violence on TV against, you know, people who look like me. So these are things that we need to prepare and prep our teachers and proper colleagues with. So Joanne, let me thank you for your incredible insights and for uh, really the call to action that you've laid out, the important steps that we need to be taking as a school community moving forward. I do want to remind our listeners that we are placing additional information on the Legal One website for those who would like to know more about these challenging questions that we are addressing, we'd like to have some additional resources, we encourage you to go to our website at www.njpsa.org slash legal1nj. Uh, we also are offering this podcast in partnership with New Jersey PTA. So we encourage you to go to the NJPTA website as well at www.njpta.org. We thank all of you for the incredible work that you are doing to support our students every day. And we look forward to having you with us on a future episode of the Legal One podcast. Be safe, be well, and thank you again for all that you do. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like more information on the topics we covered, a full list of episodes, or a preview of upcoming topics, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org legal1nj.